it's the film file. Same film channel, same film time. No, I'll do that one again because it makes sense. <laughs> you're watching. You're not watching. <clears throat> now do it again. Three, <laughs> two, one. You're listening to the film. You're listening to the film file. Same bat channel, same bat time. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Gotham City, oh no, we just jest because we have all things DC to talk about. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And welcome, as ever, to the film file. Good to have you with us for the next, I'm going to say hour, <laughs> but knowing <laughs> us, it could probably be two, three, even being broken off into a into a, uh, a backdoor pilot for another show. Who knows? But welcome. How have you been, Andy? I was impressed with last week's show because we actually kept it down to around about one hour 20. Good show. Um, which there was only one hour 30 of recording, so it was quite a tight recording. Uh, whereas normally, right, we'd sit here chatting for like two and a half hours and then I have to find some sense out of it. Um, well, we didn't have an awful lot of news last week, which which sort of no, helped. And I think the week it, before it we, were, down. we were uh, inundated with We were swamped. News. Swamped with news, which is never a bad thing. Well, I've fallen off the wagon this week. Uh, about 18 months ago, I gave up one of my addictions. I went cold turkey and just completely put it to one side. Was and that your naked skateboarding or are you still keeping that? I'm still keeping that. Of course, you've got to do that. I mean, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Anything to surprise the neighbours. Um, <laughs> they were, trust me. Uh, yeah, uh, 18 months without this addiction. And it was a hard thing to give up, but I managed to you know, stop know this dark investing side so much money. Uh, but this week, I ordered some new Funkos. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. Whew. I was, uh, for a moment, I was going to say, look, uh, <laughs> I was going to give you a therapy line. <laughs> to contact it's but it's going to be an intervention <laughs> we've become quite a funko's family at the moment as well we were doing some pre-looking lucky christmas shopping stuff with with the child and um, we looked at some funko's and we're becoming a bit of a not a not a heavy duty funko family like yourself but yeah it's it's becoming a part of us yeah but um i, I stopped buying them i mean way back in last march it's um, because you ran out of room. Lockdown. I've seen your house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, genuinely, yeah. Um, but I had to, I mean, I, I promise that this is just a, a one-off order and I'm not going to fall into the habit of buying them every week like I was at uh, because I've already got the first four of the Iron Maiden Funkos, which are the representations of the album covers, um, the first four album right. covers versions of Eddie. And they've now revealed the next two, which is the Somewhere in Time Eddie, which is Cyborg Eddie. And the seventh son of a seventh son, which is the severed torso holding an embryonic baby, um, Eddie. And they look magnificent. And there's also a third one, which is a variant for the um, Somewhere in Time one, which is the Stranger in a Strange Land, like Western coat and wide-brimmed hat version. And they look magnificent. And I just had to have them in my life. So uh, I pre-ordered them. And uh, once they turn up, I will be a happy bunny again and trying to work out where I'm going to put them. But I promise I won't. I won't buy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like them. I've only got. Uh, I've only got one. I've got an Alice Cooper one, and this. This. I think there are three Alice Cooper ones, all in all. Uh, one's quite rare, and then uh, um, there's a, a variation. I've got the white top hat Alice Cooper, which was a, a birthday present I think last year. Uh, and I'd, I'd love more, but I just I just don't have the room. The, the child's got a few. He uh, he loved. Um, he loved Kong Skull Island. He's got a Kong. Mm -hmm. And then 
we were at a, a, a toy store out of town and they were selling loads off for uh, for a fiver and he'd just seen wayne's world and absolutely adored wayne's world and, and uh, we we found a, a wayne we had to order a, a, a Garth, but he found a Wayne in this this yeah. sale for five. So he's got a few, and nice. I just think they make nice little gifts, and they always look look so well displayed. And when you've got friends who are Funko Pops, as you know, that are, are friends with a particular band, yeah. uh, and and their <laughs> Funko Pops it always makes me smile when when I see them. I, I you know I think they're great. I think I think there's something very very uh, uh, endearing about them. Um, and and the the thing is, if you can you, you collect them. So we were in a a certain store which sells things very very cheaply, and there yeah. were load in there, and and there were sort of the non popular ones, and I nearly called you because I'm thinking I wonder if any of these Andy's got. They had uh, had Mole Man from the Fantastic Four, and Herbie from the Fantastic Four. Thinking, oh, Andy might be interested in those. I think Mole Man and Herbie are the only ones out of the Fantastic Four set that I didn't pick up. Oh, do you want me to pick them up for you? <laughs> oh, if, if they still got them, uh, pick them up for us, and I'll uh, throw you the cash your way. I will have a look. Because uh, that will complete my set. Because because I've got me like you know I've got me Galactus. I've yes, yeah. I'd like the Fantastic Four <laughs> ones. I think they're they're quite they're quite cool looking. For I the think. listeners at home, I was holding up my Funko Pops at that point in time to the camera for Lee to see because <laughs> I I basically consider them my recording buddies on my te- desk in front of me. I have a rotating set of um, Funko Pops that are swap out every couple of weeks, so they've got something new to play with. Uh, today, obviously, I brought uh, Superman back into the mix because we're going to be talking about Warner Brothers and DC later on. Uh, but I, lo- I love them. I absolutely love the design of them. But I had fallen into that trap where I was just picking up anything that I could get. And it was like, you don't need all of these. Just So I'm focusing now just on the ones that are iconic or significant to me personally. I, I'm, and this ties into something that's happened to me. But uh, the edit suite that I use, and um, I've got a... Uh, some interesting news, uh, a project I've been working on for the last couple of years, and Andy knows about it. And so I, I can't say anything, that, not that I won't be able to say anything, has just been given a, a US cinema release. And um, I'm very excited about it. It's my, my first proper cinema release in the States. Um, nice. Though I can't give you any dates because, uh, um, <laughs> well, COVID is one part of that. <laughs> but I just can't give you any dates. But uh, what I can tell you is, is that... Um, the editing suite that I, I've, I've been using, the editor is a massive, and I think he's got every Funko Pop. He's just a massive fan, <laughs> and uh, and and it's always great. And I'll spend at least ten minutes in sort of viewing what's new and what he's got. And, I th- and he's got, I don't know if he's got everything, but he's 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 got <laughs> just this one wall in in his editing suite, which is all Funko Pops. It's great. Nice. I've also this week, uh, well, mostly over the past two days. I have been sat up in the early hours of the morning spending hour after hour after hour doing possibly the most geeky thing that I have done in <laughs> ages. Yeah, straight after Funko Pops. I'm not sure that, that <laughs> there's anything more geeky than that. Oh, there is. So you know, you know how I got my new tablet a few weeks ago because I accidentally stood on the old one. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I've, obviously I've transferred all my data across. And at the same time, I thought, well, I've got more storage space now. So I'm going to get all my comics collection that I've bought off Humble Bundle in different deals and I've got to download them all. So I downloaded them all in and synced them with my um, Comic Zone app. And the their identity tags didn't match up. So I've gone through and changed the information tags on everything to categorize everything under different collections, volumes, storylines, artists, writers. <laughs> uh, because it, it just the Spawn ones alone, 300 and odd comics 
But some of them were, were under the tag of Spawn issues. Some of them were under Spawn with a capital S. Some of them were Spawn with a lowercase s. And they all went into different categories. So I had to go through every issue and update the information. And that's been my week. <laughs> um, you know, you just reminded me of something. I feel, quite, I feel quite good now that it's done. Because now when I open up the app, it's just got all the categories at the side. And I can go, oh, I want to know what artist did these. Oh, there's the art by artist. But I can just go, right, okay, by volume title. There's me spawns, all grouped together, one folder. Go in, yes, marvellous, all in order, all perfect. Maybe I'll get round to reading them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, that's the hard bit. (laughs) A few years back, um, I was looking to move house. And uh, I had had somebody potentially moving into my house that's going to rent it out. And uh, um, I boxed up all my comics, and and the the plan fell through. It's it's the year that I I went on on tour, so the house was going to be empty. But we we figured it out, and uh, my my partner ended up moving in with me. Yeah, and so I boxed up all my comics to to move them, and then when that fell through, I had to unbox everything, and it took me about three days to put everything back into into the uh, into the cupboard where all my comics are kept. But you know what? I had like literally two days of having to go through everything, put them in order, put them in alpha, alphabetical order. And I just loved it. Loved it. I wish I had the time just to sit and do that. Did you do that thing where as you're doing it, you come across something and you go, actually, I'm putting that on that pile because I want to re- read that again. Yeah, yeah. That's and why it took me two yeah, days. Yeah, stack. <laughs> yeah yeah because when we well, moved not into read this, this place for some time. i'll do that i was doing exactly the same and i ended up with a stack that i wanted to work through it was just like this isn't helping sort everything out but you know what i'm going to enjoy this <laughs> i have been thinking a lot about my comic collection and i've got i've got hundreds of thousands of comics way back yeah. from the 60s i mean some worth an absolute mint um they're all in a in a cupboard and and every now and then i keep thinking can i can i keep them can I, is it, I don't read them, but I would love that day. I would love that weekend, and I should have done it during lockdown. Is to, to yeah. just open up, lock myself in the room, and 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 go back and read stuff. Uh, and I don't collect physical comics anymore. Same here, because of mainly, and I love I love the paper, and I love being able to to physically hold one. However, um, you know the 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 joy of having them on Comicsology, for instance, is that yeah. joy of being able to not worry about space because they're there somewhere and i've got i've got a good couple of thousand on on comiXology but you know the this decision will have to be made at some point and and I, it would be like losing an arm yeah. because i've had they are my my childhood they they are the thing yeah that and my record collection and i got rid of my record collection always regretted it always regretted getting rid of my vinyl and uh i that was losing my left arm then i'd be losing my right arm because they tell you something about yourself yeah they, they, well, you, you you chart your life through them. I remember, yeah. Uh, yeah. remember the first comic that I got into, and I, I I was reading comics way way very very young, um, and reading Marvel comics without knowing I was reading Marvel comics. I was a subscriber to comics from from about four, um, and I was getting things like Looking Comic. Well, there you go. That's mm-hmm. taking people back, and uh, and all those sorts of things. And they usually had it was because of, of things like Star Trek or Doctor Who were my my connection to it and i remember the there was a british run of comics which had um a backup feature which would be doctor strange or the hulk and, and that was my introduction to it and mighty world they, of marvel by any chance uh no it was uh, it was something called pow comics i think they were called oh pow yeah comics. 
and they had they had British superheroes, and in fact, they had the Archie character that Alan Moore did something with with a series yeah. called Albion, and they had a little backup of, of Doctor Strange at one point. I remember it also so clearly. Yeah. So they've been a part of my life for fifty odd years. Like, like I've suggested, I remember the Mighty World of Marvel reprints yeah, yeah. of American things, but they were in backup strips against like Captain Britain was the key character uh, story, and then you get the Micronauts, or you get like some yeah. some obscure title from the US yeah. to introduce you to the wider world of Marvel comics. Uh, I've I've always considered them. I mean, it sounds like you consider them the same. Is comic books to me are more than just reading materials; they are memories. Yeah. Um, when when I take out an old comic from my childhood, it casts my mind back to where I was when I first got that comic, and I can remember the events. They're like photographs. Yes, good way of putting that. Excellent. Yeah. They have that kind of like significance to moments in my life when I first read them. And yeah, all the way through to me, like you know, my student years when I was like collecting all the dark horse comics and the image lines that were coming out. Everything can be tied to a significant point in my life from all those physical forms. Yeah, And whilst you don't quite get that with the digital ones, you know, it's the convenience of the digital now that I'm in in my waning years. Um, The digital (laughs) one is is a lot more convenient and it doesn't take up space. Yeah, I mean, it's always the thing. It's it's everywhere I've lived. It has to to be a consideration of of where these things are going to go. And at times life would have been a lot easier not dragging them around and and having, I mean, a few opportunities I've I've had... uh, uh, one house I lived in had a, an attic room, which had just turned into a comics room, which is probably the best it's ever been. But, you know, it's a decision at, at some point in my life will have to be made. And it, it would be it'd be heartbreaking because I'd rather see them all go than hang on to two or three issues. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's a, yeah. I'd rather make that that um, that split and, and not say good, not say goodbye by hanging on to some of it. It'd have to be all or nothing. But it, it will happen. Or something similar will happen, I, and I hope it's not a decision that's taken away from me, rather than it's something I have to decide to do. But yeah, it is as you uh, as you rightly put. Um, yeah, more than more than just a collection. It, it's a it's uh, it's a map of my life. As I said, I remember going through one period in my life when I I was spending forty quid a month on on, on comics, and yeah, um, you know, having probably then like twenty titles a month. Um, but now I've, I'm down to, <laughs> I'm sort of like some sort of an addict. I'm down to just a few. Anyway, you didn't come and join us just to hear us talk about our geekdom. Or maybe you did because we've got. I think we've just uh, let the listeners know exactly what kind of show this is going to be. Cause we've just <laughs> yeah. spoken for 20 minutes about comics. <laughs> so in this week's show, what have we got for you? Of course, we will be talking in the news about this week's DC fandom. As well as the other news, we've got a deep dive into... Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Andy will be reviewing... The Last Jewel, Madras, and Halloween Kills. But before any of that, of course, here's the news. So, Andy, um, I'm gathering that uh, you spent a, a sleepless Saturday night as you... I was going to say into the into the pleasure dome, but the DC fan dome is yes. it is it kind of Mad Max ish? Did you have to fight your way in? Did you have to put your leather biker jacket on and and battle Tina Turner just to to get the news? Or I mean, I mean that's an average Saturday for me anyway. So you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been to your cinema. 
yeah, I was uh, I, I was made sure that I wasn't working for the Saturday because I wanted to make sure that I could be settled, ready for 6 p.m. when it started in the UK to watch the live feed stream. And it was it was almost three and a half hours worth of feed. Um, so there was a significant a significant amount of things that were getting spoken about. With regards to big reveals, there wasn't any major shocks. There wasn't anything major like, oh, we didn't know that. Everything was kind of already known, but it was nice to actually see some odds and ends and see some details. Key thing to kick off with is that there was not one mention of a certain hashtag. Uh, there <laughs> I was, wonder why. There was, there was no mention of any names to do with that hashtag because he's it's irrelevant been, to the franchise it's now. It's been laid to rest. We've moved on, I think. Is, is and interestingly, over on Twitter, I was expecting there to be backlash from the hashtag brigade, but they've been quite quiet. It looks like the, most of them might have actually realised. Well, some of them have gone through puberty since then, so um, yeah, you know, time four years is a long time. It was a great show that they put on again because last year's was a really good, well put together show. And again, it's all about like the fandom and it's all about rewarding the fans and treating the fans to what they can at the moment. It opened up with like the classic Superman theme, uh, which must have annoyed all the like Zack Snyder fan base who say that like that's so dated and within it you heard sound bites from various films and tv shows including there was a very prominent booyah and i was like oh the hashtag brigade are going to explode at that one <laughs> they hated that, that being used but then we got into the actual material so i've got some notes on some of the things that were discussed first out the gate was black adam Last year, we got to see concept art, and this year, we got to see more concept art and some production elements. Uh, Pierce Brosnan was doing a little to-camera piece talking about it, and he looks very dapper as Dr. Fate. He yes, looks fantastic. I see, I've caught up. I've caught up with some of the key highlights, because I knew we'd be going through them. So I can say that I did see the uh, the scene from Black yeah. Adam. Yeah, um, The Rock introduced the a clip that from the early part of the film, and he, he explains that this whole film has been a passion project for him. He's chased it since initial conception. He's He was born to play this role, as he says. And the early scene that we saw was Adam being resurrected and immediately dispatching an armed soldier before picking a bullet out the air and then rising up. And it looks intense. It, it does. looks quite dark. I've never been able to get my head around why they picked a Black Adam film rather than introducing Black Adam as part of Shazam. And for those who are going, Shazam, Black Adam, I'm not with you. So in, <laughs> in comic lore, Black Adam was the, the prime villain, equal match villain to Shazam, Captain Marvel from, from the DC line. And so it was interesting that they decided to, and, and Dwayne Johnson's perfectly cast, by the way, uh, looks the part. Yeah. But it was always an interesting play to go, let's take this character and build a movie around him rather than introduce him into Shazam 2, for instance. But from what I saw, it, it looked it looked pretty epic. It's only a, it was only a short little tease that wasn't a full trailer or anything, but it was enough to whet my appetite a bit. And now it can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned. I can't wait for a full trailer to arrive so we can get to see some more fleshing out of what we're going to get because surely it's not going to be a whole film just with him being a bad guy it's got to be in a redemption arc you can't you can't basically have him still be a villain by the end so well i don't know look at joker look at joker yeah. i mean it's what it's where that character goes because you know the little snippets that they did give away was that was the idea that you know we're going to learn the origin story of black yeah. adam so even if that's the opening scene of the movie then 
I'm, yeah. a, I'm guessing there will be flashbacks into into the origin of Black Adam and 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 where that yeah. goes. So, yeah, I mean, very intrigued to see where they take it. And of course, after Black Adam, I think you know they showed little um, a little introduction to Blue Beetle and some concept designs for that and Batgirl without footage because you know, there is none yet. The concept art. I mean, that they had a Q and A with. Um, the people behind it and the concept art for the costume was revealed and it looks it looks pretty comic accurate um but without it looking hokey because some comic accurate costumes can look really hokey but it looks really i'm liking the aesthetic that they're going for i'm interested interested with blue beetle like i've always said i want more of these lesser known characters being brought to the screen i don't just want batman superman flash wonder woman i want to see the pantheon of super characters that DC has the same way that we've seen it with Marvel. We've seen them tap into some of the more obscure characters. Blue Beetle is a great character that has been sorely underused. And this is a chance for it to really, really mean something. And I love the fact that they pointed out in the Q and a that whereas like in, in Marvel, Peter Parker gets his abilities and keeps it hidden from his family. Uh, Blue Beetle's Hispanic and you can't keep anything from your family. So it's a full family story that yeah. his whole family are behind him in this superhero role. And that gives a whole different dynamic to the approach that they can do with this character. Uh, we also saw The Flash. I was just about to say, uh, I've seen The Flash. Now, uh, before we go to The Flash, can we just mention that uh, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom brought us yeah. some behind-the-scenes uh, shots for, for DC fandom? Yeah, they're going everywhere with this one, aren't they? The environments that we got to see in those clips, we saw deserts, frozen wildernesses, jungles, epic temples. It's It looks huge in scale. Yeah, I, I mean, as you know, I didn't buy into Aquaman. I, it didn't land for me. Best one in the world, I just thought it was all over the place, even though I thought Jason Momoa was a great heart of it. For me, it couldn't decide what kind of a movie it wanted to be. It was an Arthurian legend, I get that. Yeah, but I just didn't. It, I'd like to see a more focused sequel. Uh, but I was in, impressed with the bits I've seen. I mean, the big news, of course, is um, DC League of Super Pets. Oh, uh, got a oh brief man! Teaser. Oh man, that that looks so much fun. I mean, The Rock again, but this time providing the voice of Crypto, the um, Super Dog. And uh, obviously, if The Rock's around doing something jokey, Kevin Hart's in his pocket popping up, so he gives the voice for Ace. Uh, the full trailer is going to land in November, but we got a little tease bit, and it the the animation looks stylish, and I'm in. I'm definitely in for the League of Super Pets. I'm building to the Flash because uh, I'm going to mention Shazam: Fury of the Gods. Now, I know there was a, a a promo for that one, a behind the scenes promo, but I didn't. I've not seen that one yet. So, talk me through what we were seeing with Shazam. <clears throat> uh, yeah, for the first look at Shazam Fury of the Gods, again, we didn't get to see a huge amount. We got to see some more detail of the costumes. We got to see some small clips from on set. And we got to hear Helen Mirren talking quite excitedly about superhero things, which seems quite bizarre at times. When, when you look at like, you know, established British thespians getting so enthusiastic about comic book movies, you can't help but just raise this little smile and go, I'd never dreamed that this would have happened when I was a child. Well, we talked about that every week, haven't we? <laughs> to some extent, we're living in a golden age. Oh, yes. Shazam Fury of the Gods is going to tap into mytho- mythological aspects. There's going to be the realm of the gods. There's going to be the pantheons of the gods. There's going to be mythological beasts in there. It looks great. The costumes now look less cheesy. This 
harkens back to what I said about like, you know, comic accurate costumes can sometimes look really corny, but they've kind of kept the comic accuracy whilst morphing them to make them look more grown up for this. The only issue I've got, which is Amphiori the Gods, it's 2023. Mm. I can't wait that long. <laughs> I think you're going to have to. I don't think there's anything well, I can do. I, I know people who know people, but I don't know those people. I mean, Shazam was one of my favourites of the past few years of DC films. I thought it had such genuine heart and it had a good approach to it. And I'm so definitely on board for that whole aspect being expanded out to go more super and more heroic and more mythological. We've had the personal story, personal journey. We can now take it big and epic and it looks like it's going to be big and epic. So a couple of others that... Uh, I was going to say for TV, but it's not TV, it's HBO Max. We saw Peacemaker. Yeah, I mean, Peacemaker, we, we knew that this was coming, but we got to see clips from the set, which uh, shows that James Gunn is keeping the tone that he brought with the Suicide Squad, the same kind of brutal action and the same wisecracking that we expect from Gunn. And he got to point out that in a Q&A session that they did from fan questions, he was asked whether there was any characters he wanted to use but wasn't allowed. And he said, no, he got chance to use everyone for the series that he wanted to use. So no restrictions. It, apparently, at one point on set, he was uh, baffled as to how HBO are letting him get away with making this, uh, which bodes well for what kind of sick and twisted aspect he's going to bring to the whole show. But it looks fun. I mean, I've never been a John Cena fan. No, me neither. But I think he's marvellous as Peacemaker, and I can't wait to see this full series. That's because some actors, well, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll, let me rephrase that. Some people who become actors from their prime, uh, whether that's sports or, or bodybuilding, can find that one role that they can just throw themselves into. And, you know, uh, Dwayne Johnson's done it wonderfully and proved that you can break that mould. But he does end up playing to a degree himself, even when he's self-referential on it. But I think, yeah. you know, people like Schwarzenegger found it with playing the Terminator, that they that they could embed something into it that made them unique for the role. And I think this is this is the role for Cena. I think Peacemaker yeah. plays to his strengths of, of what kind of a character he, he you know, he's, he's never going to play uh, Shakespeare, but give him Peacemaker <laughs> and he's in. So uh, then there was Gotham Knights, which I only saw the headline, which was the uh, Scott Snyder Court of Owls imagery that went with it. But I know very little else about that. Uh, yeah, that's one of the um, multiple video games that is coming our way. Maybe you've got Gotham Knights, which is going to focus on the Court of Owls. You'll be playing Nightwing and it looks very Arkham Asylum-y in approach. And also the Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League looks like utter fun. Um, we only got to see, you know, the, the FMV moat like sections we didn't get to see any gameplay but it looks like it retains this the same kind of wacky comedy that we expect from the suicide squad the over-the-top violence and the, the 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 daft throwaway lines so they look like fun games whether it actually works out as gameplay wise remains to be seen but there's enough in those trailers to make me go you know what I might just invest some money in these. With regards to other TV ones we know that the flash and supergirl will be coming to an end soon. Uh, the flash has revealed the big reveal for next season is that the gold boots are finally getting added to the costume. <laughs> We've waited um, <laughs> six seasons or however long it is. Apparently, um, Grant Gustin, who plays Barry Allen in it, has always wanted the gold boots and he's been campaigning for it over season after season. Every time that they've refined a little bit of the costume and changed something, he's always like, when am I getting the boots? And finally, for the, for the last run of it, he's going to have the gold boots and we got to see what it looks like with it. 
I do think they look stupid, but, you know, I think it's quite charming that they've tapped into it finally. And um, for Supergirl, there was a really charming look back at Supergirl as it prepares for the final season. The cast all sat around sharing some of their favourite moments, uh, the, the moments on set or their favourite actual scenic moments within the show and what it all meant to them. It actually makes me want to go back and catch up with the show again before it comes to an end because it reminded me of what I loved about that cast and I loved about the whole show. So it's done its trick. I'm going to be on board for the final season and I'll probably be shedding some tears as it plays out. So just some quick snippets. It looks like uh, Wonder Woman 3 is officially in the works uh, as Linda yes. Carter hints that she's going to return as Asteria. Yep. Teen Titans, or should I just say the Titans, has been renewed for season four and Pennyworth. And they're both officially moving to HBO Max for, for season three of that. And Doom Patrol, which is a great series, hard to get in in the UK because I think it's on stars. Yeah. But well worth checking out is getting a season four again at HBO Max. And then we get some animated shows. We've talked about Super Pets, Catwoman Hunted, and Green Lantern and Super Sons for 2022. There's a wealth of animated shows on the way, and the reveals are really good. I mean, Catwoman also has its live action t- uh, live action approach in the Batwoman TV series, but I couldn't be less bothered about the Batwoman TV series. How on earth that show is on season three, I don't know. But Catwoman Hunted looks great. We got to see clip of the actual animation. It looks very anime in its approach. And the story will see us steal the world's most valuable jewel, resulting in warrants out for arrest from pretty much every nation. And that lands in February the 8th. Uh, They've got five original DC animated movies due in 2022. One of the ones which caught my eye is Constantine House of Mystery. Because uh, I do love the character of Constantine and Matt Ryan My reprises the voice DC once again. Character. Now, the animated series that I'm looking forward to the most, which is in a stage of pre-production at the moment, is Batman Kate Crusader. And this comes from J.J. Abrams, Matt Reeves and the legendary Bruce Tim. For those who don't know Bruce Tim, remember the Batman animated series from the 90s? That's your boy. Yeah, that him and Paul Dini revolutionised yeah. how we saw Batman. It took all the best elements from Tim Burton's Batman movies, and it took all the best elements from the 1930s Fleischer Superman cartoons, mixed them together, intertextuality at its best, and created probably the, for me at least, definitive Batman that we've ever seen on screen. Definitely. Um, Bruce Tim himself said that what he conceives Batman Cape Crusader to be is if he could go back to the 90s and make Batman animated series again, but without the restrictions that the studio placed on him, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to go too dark and gothic and it can't be too graphic. He can make a more adult-toned Batman origin story. It's going to be like a Batman year one approach, starting off with low tech and slowly building up the origins of his vehicles, gadgets, etc. And his rogues gallery doesn't already exist. So it'll all every character will slowly come to know the Batman as we come to know him. It sounds intriguing. I'm definitely on board for it. If they can keep the animated style of that 90s one, but just with like a modern-day sheen, it will look absolutely fantastic. That is the animated series for me in the next few years. Absolutely. So before we go to the top two, there were character posters revealed for the Sandman. Yes. We saw the first look at Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer, and they're going for that. As they did in the book, the asexual look at Lucifer rather than the uh, Lucifer series, for instance, and, and Gwendolyn Christie in the uh, in the character poster certainly has an androgynous look to her. 
I'm still looking forward to Sandman. Funny enough, I've just downloaded the uh, Audible Sandman series, so I'm, I'm I'm betting that could potentially be my neat thing in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> so those are kind of generally all the big highlights. But of course, uh, and, I, and I stopped you in your tracks before. There's so the big let's two. talk about the big two. Let's start with The Flash, because there was a teaser trailer which revealed Barry Allen's new suit, uh, bringing back Batman and a couple of surprises. Yeah, um, Ezra Miller did a little to camera piece to say they've they've not got a full trailer, they've not got any detailed footage, but there is a couple of little snippets, and we it was a basic tease. Yeah. Everything was tease, tease, tease from the opening shot of uh, the gates of Wayne Manor, and it's the classic Wayne Manor Manor that we know. Yeah, which was shot in England. And the film, yep. from what I gather, was shot in the UK. Uh, the new costume, uh, which we've seen concept art of, but now we got to actually see it in full use. And I love the design of it. I love the sleekness of it. I've never, I didn't like this like stuck on triangles bit of um, the, yeah. the Zack Snyder version. I thought that it was too bulky. It looked too false. Yeah, it's, you know, for something that's supposed to be streamlined, it wasn't streamlined. Whereas this looks sleek. It looks like the Flash. It definitely looks like the Flash of the comics. We get to glimpse Batman stepping into frame from behind, but it's definitely that rubber cowl that Keaton used. It's yeah. the same design. It's the same shape, everything. So, oh, it was a tease, absolute tease. No turning round, no look at the logo, just a behind the head look. And then the Flash pulling a, a cover away from a Batmobile that we don't get to see. Just as it whips off, it, it went to black. And it's like, it kind of looked like the shape of the one from the Burton films, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it was I, a, I took it as being as being the Burton design. It was it was a, a nice little teaser section to whet our appetites for when the full trailer arrives. And I'm I'm loving, loving what I'm seeing about it. Um, it's interesting to also note that in another section of the show, Jim Lee was talking about how they've been teasing with little bits of sections as to what the future of the DCEU is with like pieces of a picture. And the picture turned out to be an image of the Crisis on Infinite Earths comic series, which he's hinted that the DCEU itself is going to work towards adapting that kind of storyline as their own kind of Infinity War slope stroke endgame finale in like eight years time. So Flashpoint is the start of that. Flashpoint is the start of the multiverse opening up for DC and everything breaking apart and starting to fracture that we'll be leading to with um, a crisis. Well, you've kind of took the words out of my mouth because I didn't know that that from Jim Lee. So, I mean, what, what my takeaway from that little teaser was, was uh, Barry Allen has now travelled to a universe where his mother is still alive and well, uh, yeah. home to Keaton's Batman. I think we got a, a quick shot of Sasha Kelly's Supergirl. Yes. And an alternate Barry Allen who didn't appear to have the, the, the super speed. Uh, Flash's costume, um, it looked like he was taking an old Batman costume and, and reworking it mm. at one point. And then did I or did I not see the cowl of Ben Affleck's Batman on the floor seemingly uh, seemingly destroyed? Did I catch that or did I? Because I've only watched it the once, and I just made some very brief notes. I was going through. I hadn't, ca I hadn't caught that one, so I'll, I'll watch that one back through. But as I said, with with sort of the Jim Lee thing on it, 
this is a perfect opportunity for them to, because DC are all over the place, as we know. Yeah. This is a perfect opportunity to prune all that, introduce a new Batman if they are going to sort of kill off Affleck's Batman, for want of a better term, and start with the new Batman. So it gives us that opportunity to uh, to um, to to really start again, and not have to worry about a DC EU really, do we? No. The, the whole aspect is a way for them to branch off, do their own things, ignore past mistakes. I'm going to say at the risk of offending all the hashtag. Yeah, I think you there. will. Let's just do it. <laughs> Let's be bold. And. And move forwards, because that's what the DCEU needs to do. It needs to move forwards and stop drawing on the past. It's an exciting time ahead, but nothing more exciting than the Batman trailer. Yeah. So let's dig deep into the Batman trailer. Again, I've only watched this this through once, so I, I made some notes. So we had an introduction, a proper introduction, really, this time to the Batman. And even though my first takeaway with it is that... Uh, uh, Matt Reeves has given us a very realistic looking world. I thought in the teaser, it borrowed perhaps a little bit too heavily from Seven, but I wasn't getting that vibe this time. And I thought it felt a lot bigger than the that initial initial teaser gave us. We got to see a fair bit of the Penguin in this yes. new teaser. I'm probably, um, and I'm thinking we probably got to see all the Penguin scenes because we know for a fact that uh, they've already said only a minor is, character is only a minor character in it. So I think we may have seen all all the uh, <laughs> all the shots of the penguin. <laughs> but we got a first look at Andy Circus. Yeah, and we all got we, we got our tease of the Riddler as well. Yeah, some great shots of Selina Kyle played by Zoe Kravitz and and giving her that that really cool femme fatale look. Um, yeah. And seeing her a little bit in action, which was a a, a definite upswing for me. Um. And we got this this sense of uh, the Batman this time being not only a vigilante, but um, uh, a detective as well, yeah. which has been solely missing in the, in the Batman movies. And probably only really into that with, with Keaton in, in the first Batman movie. Yeah. Um, if there was one negative that I could draw from this trailer, and it's not actually a serious negative, but it's just something that broke the illusion for me. Because so much of it was shot in Liverpool, <laughs> as soon as I spotted certain skylines, certain buildings, I saw Lime Street, I saw St. George's Hall, and it broke the illusion for me. I now know how people from Chicago feel whenever they're watching gangster films. I had that with Captain America First Avenger, because I was working in <laughs> Manchester a lot when they were, <laughs> we were filming that. And I kept no, I knew, I knew where those, those, those shots were, uh, and especially the dock scene. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I don't think it's enough to take you out of the movie. I know that that sometimes happens. I was we we talked about it quite recently about when I always know stuff is filmed in Australia and it's not the yeah. US. <laughs> but I, I was I was more in, intrigued. I, I can't say that I was overblown by the teaser, but this time I think it's uh, um, I think it sold me. I like the look more. I thought it felt small, the teaser, and this opened it up quite a lot. Quite a lot for me. I've seen commenters today saying that all the naysayers need to eat their words um, after that trailer dropped because anyone who thought Robert Patterson, oh, he's just that bloke from Twilight. Seriously, if you're still saying that now, then you clearly don't like films. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> cinema's not for you. <laughs> just to round off, there was two other highlights of the evening for me. Uh, the first first one was the kid who plays Gus from Sweet Tooth doing a rather charming Q&A revealing like the animatronics of the years and also how how many sweets he actually ate during shooting that was a nice little reminder that oh yeah this is a this is a dc thing as well isn't it 
Yeah, same with Why the Last Man, to a degree. We forget about And also, that. Superman has a new motto. Instead of truth, justice, and the American way, it's now truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Because it's to embrace everything global. I've not seen Fox News pick this up yet. But I'm <laughs> sure that they will be, and there will be, uh, there'll be a world out there damning it as being woke and yeah. uh, anti-American. And you know what? The only person who could sell that line about truth, justice, and the American way was Christopher Reeve in the in Superman the yeah. movie. That the world has moved on. All in all, it was an interesting three and a half hours worth of streaming. There wasn't one point that I was bored or distracted by it. I was excited by all the reveals of what's happening in the comics, what's happening on TV, what's happening in games, what's happening in films. And now I'm just waiting for Disney's Investor Day so I can do this all over again with the Disney <laughs> and MCU. <laughs> Well, quickly before we move on to the rest of the news, and um, we've not got a lot in the way of news this week. Uh, did you see the Hawkeye trailer? Oh, yes. Yes. That looks big. I, I said that before. It's got a, yeah. a real big, almost Joel Silver kind of vibe to it. it, it, it again, the, Disney have got all the money. So when it comes to producing a show, it, it doesn't look like it's shot on a, on, on a lot somewhere. This felt, felt big and cinematic and a lot of fun. And apparently the, the first two episodes are dropping on the same day. So that's going to be a nice double bill. And no, yeah. and once once it comes to it, we will, of course, talk about it on the show. And the rest of the news, Andy? Well, let's talk about box office. What are Bond's figures for the US? And what else is, is, is Breaking Bad this week? Well, Breaking Bad isn't actually still running. Uh, that cancelled a good few years ago. <laughs> on Better Call oh, Saul, you, you wit, you. <laughs> You win. <laughs> um, let's start with what's topping the US box office and indeed has done really well in the UK this week. And that's Halloween Kills. Off to a very strong start in the US with a 50.4 million debut, which, considering it's been released on the Peacock streaming service at the same time, is either an indication of how poorly subscribed Peacock is or highlights the draw <laughs> of horror films in the order. And we've said this previously that horror films are the kind of films that work in a cinema environment because yeah, it's that yeah, shared yeah. experience kind of film. And it makes us, it makes a bog standard horror film a lot better. And well, I'll be talking about Halloween kills later in the review. So you get to know what my take on it is, right. but it's been doing well. And we've been seeing good business at our box office with the film. Okay. In the UK, it's took 5.4 million. It's only been released in the US and the UK yet. It's rolling out in other countries over the next two weeks. Funnily enough, on the road to Halloween, who'd have thunk it? Well, you know, if you're going to release a movie called Halloween, Easter's <laughs> not a good time. And the advantage of horror films being released at this time of the year is if they get released early in October, they usually hold over quite well right up until the end of the month. So we're probably going to see not much of a drop off each week on this. Halloween Kills was also quite a typical low budget horror film for Blumhouse. So yeah. this is this is going to draw profit. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the Blumhouse method, isn't it? They come in at a at a decent budget, which for a lot of films wouldn't cover catering. Yeah. And they make their money back because there's always going to be an audience for low budget horror films, especially, may I add, at this time of year. Bond this week in the US dropped just over 50 percent. Now, before we start worrying that that's um, a bad sign, that's actually quite usual for a Bond film week on okay. week in the US. So it's it's tracking the same way that films such as Skyfall, Spectre, etc., have done previously. It took $24.3 million this weekend. It's currently on $447 million worldwide, which has put it into sixth place. It's past Shang-Chi after just three weeks on international release. 
and the Chinese market is still yet to open in a week and a half. And it looks set to keep pulling figures in. I'm starting to really genuinely believe that this is going to surpass the 800 million. That is that key critical cutoff point that they need. Now, can I ask you, Andy, because I've seen various uh, YouTube headlines, not watched them personally, so I'm, I'm not drawn into them. And I, a couple of uh, a couple of things on Twitter that the Bond as a franchise is over. It's not making anybody. Nobody's interested. Well, you know, I clearly, um, it, clearly, all those YouTube commenters know what they're talking about because you know, 447 minute million just shows that no one wants to spend any money on this franchise. Bond's not dead. Bond's going to keep going it's a franchise that will still keep bringing people in there's something about the escapism of an international spy caper it's why the bond franchise is popular it's why the mission impossible franchise is popular it's why we gravitate towards these there's escapism so there's nothing to worry about bond has done really well no time to die has proven that you know not only did people want to come back to the box office for the right film but also bond has got legs and let's just get excited next year when they start casting for the new role you see i think i think they've already chosen i really do i think you know in that year off that you know they had a lot else to do the film was finished it was ready to go why not get get bond cast and get ready to ready to rock with a new movie just don't drop the don't drop the name until next year because you don't want to step on your own toes yeah absolutely what's the point on opening uh, uh with your opening your big new film and there it is uh this hey this is the new guy uh, venom this week continued to fall it dropped another 48% in the US this week. It dropped 67% if we remember from last week. It took 16 million US dollars, but it's currently resting on 283 million worldwide. So it hasn't got anything to worry about its profit. How's it looking in the UK? It's opened well, but then lost its momentum after the first two days. Uh, but it's not going to get, it doesn't look like it's going to get anywhere near what the first Venom film did because that made it up to about 800 million by the end of its run. We're probably looking to be finishing this run about 450, 500. Still immensely profitable because it was only like a 90 million production budget. So it's a win. Okay. I mean, it, it bodes well. I, I don't think anybody expected it to do the typical MCU business, but it sounds as though it's pulled off what it needed to do. The two disappointments again. Adam's Family 2 held fourth place with a pittance of a takings. International figures included, so far, it's only taken a 60 million on a 100 million budget. Ooh. And that's after two weeks of being out. It's it's not gonna it's not gonna last. And yeah, like like we said last week, we're probably not gonna see any more Adam's family animations get churned out. I wonder why it's it's bombed so badly, because you'd think, especially this time of year. You'd think this time of year there'd be a market for it. Yeah, it's, and there's there's not a huge amount of family material out there. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a curiosity. Uh, the biggest disappointment, however, this week was The Last Duel, which right. I'll review later in the show. The Ridley yeah. Scott film took a paltry 4.8 million in the US, which, again, a budget of 100 million. This is a disaster. I have a theory on this. Um, I've not seen the film, so I can't, I can't offer a, a, a comment on it. I think it was the wrong time to release it. Yeah, I think it should have been for the uh, Oscar Oscar noms period, which is normally January February. Yeah, I think it just feels a little bit too dour and a little okay. bit too serious. Uh, having knowing what the plot is and knowing what the uh, um, the delivery of it, I was geared to see this based on you know the fact that you know Affleck and Dame had written the script, great cast. 
but the subject matter I, I just find dour and and i i feel i ought to see it as opposed to i want to see it and that's when yeah you, you've got that little bit of reasoning to do and and you know other things will crop up which will which will take me away from that yeah i mean it's it's got released at a time when there's far too much competition we've got a, a worldwide a worldwide mentality of audience goers that just wants escapism they don't yeah. want to be reminded about the harshest aspects of life and you know the, the worst of humanity and yeah i'll talk about the film later i'll tell you what i think about it but it's maybe too niche a film for this point in time yeah, and yeah. that's why it's it's kind of just got lost and buried underneath a deluge of other things. It's a shame Ridley Scott films shouldn't suffer this badly. His name should be enough to sell it, and the cast involved should be enough to sell it. But it's not it's not being heavily promoted because how do you heavily promote? I mean, if you don't know what the story is out there, then we won't go we won't spoil any of the details. But it is basically about. Uh, you know, the last duel that took place and uh, it was all because of a brutal rape. Yeah. And it's not it's not what people want. That's that's the top five box office from the US, the key five films that are currently playing. Next week's going to be an interesting one because we've got another heavy batch of releases. In yeah. fact, the next few weeks are going to be quite interesting. Yeah, we've got Dune, we've got uh, Eternals, Busy Week, Box Office. Anyway, moving on, we've hinted at Marvel. I know there's a little bit of Marvel rescheduling. And talking of Eternals, by the way, Andy, uh, it was the red carpet. Yeah, it was indeed. Just the other night. And word seems good. Spectacular, weird, rich, uh, honestly refreshing. Yeah. Uh, bittersweet. All those terms have come up with it. Beautifully shot. Well, one would expect so from, from Chloe Zhao. But uh, word, apparently, early reactions, um, call it Marvel's most ambitious movie today but that's not the story yes uh, we're back into release date shuffle time again i thought that we'd put all the release date shuffles behind us a few weeks ago i thought that this would never come up again but no the mcu are shuffling pretty much every one of their upcoming films starting with doctor strange in the multiverse of madness uh, Doctor Strange has shifted from March next year to May the 6th, and due to the crossover nature of the MCU between the shows and films, the ripple effect has moved each film back by a slot. So we now have July the 8th next year, Thor Love and Thunder, November the 11th, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, February the 17th, 2023, The Marvels, May the 5th, 2023, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, July the 28th, 2023, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, and then November the 3rd, 2023, a still as untitled Marvel film, Possibly Blade. Possibly Blade. Now, there has been a rumour, just jumping in on that one, that that Blade is further along than anyone thought it was. Yeah. So that could be that. That could be the untitled Marvel film. But to, to say that, Andy, I mean, we're only losing a matter of months rather than, than anything much longer. It's not going to make in the scheme of things that much difference is it no it's not gonna it's not gonna really impact on it it basically means that now there's three films coming out each year rather than four films coming out each year See, i think that's more doable because otherwise you're going to get i mean i'd be happy going back to two because yeah. i don't want to get to the stage of overkill yeah you don't want it to burn out speculation over what caused the shuffle worries over box office some have suggested no it's not worries over box no. office shang chi's just shown that there's no concern of that most of the proper analysts who are worth listening to agree that it's it is somewhat COVID-related, and it will be to do with the production schedules in this new post-COVID area being more complicated. Plans to make mm. sets COVID-safe slow things down. 
and then breaks in production due to COVID outbreaks leads to more time being needed to touch up the end products. So at some point, Doctor Strange has been impacted by a few delays. And so in order to make sure that Doctor Strange can be finished and look polished rather than rushing to get it out, they've given it an extra three months. And the knock-on effect, as we've said, because the MCU interlinked between the TV shows and the films, if you move one of them, you have to move everything afterwards. Otherwise, you're going to end up stepping on each other. So it's just as simple as that. We just have to wait a little bit longer, and it's going to be worth the wait. You know, after everything we've waited for so far, nowadays it doesn't seem that much (laughs) bigger deal, does it? At the same time, there is a bigger bigger wait for Indiana Jones 5, which has jumped a whole year to June June the 30th, 2023. Okay, that I didn't know. This should come as no surprise, though, given that Harrison Ford was put out of action for three months after an injury on set when he's um, damaged his shoulder. And that three months doesn't mean that the whole film's put back by three months. It impacts on scheduling conflicts mm. with various cast members, crew, etc. on Effects other projects. Houses, stunt so people, the works. They've given themselves an extra year to get everything back on track. We'll just have to wait that little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, we've waited before. Um, I, I think the interesting thing is, and you've sort of hit upon that, there was a time when uh, studios were controlling and wanted to get their movies out ASAP to the point where the quality yeah. um, was impacted on it. The, a classic case is, is Back to the Future. Back mm. to the Future was brought ahead of schedule and a lot of the effects work wasn't finished to the satisfactory uh, uh, degree that it should have been. So, you know, if you've got that little bit of extra time yeah. to do it right and without worrying about box office, and, and they're not going to be worried about box office, with those uh, with those uh, pantheon of titles, you know, get it right. Make sure and make sure it's going to be the film that we want, rather than it's rushed through for delivery. And Marvel have that much control, as does to a degree Indiana Jones. Okay, so the box office is going well, as we've just discussed. But what we need to um, think about is how well will it be further down the line if the strikes that are looming on the horizon in the industry actually go ahead. I just found out about this. Um, when I say just found out about it, I mean it properly found out about it. So post-COVID, um, where the world's restarting, and this is a, a endemic at the moment, not just to film, but a, a really across industry, particularly in the United States, and I think it's something, and I don't want to get too political because it's, it's not a political show, it's something that we are going to see an awful lot, I yeah. think, uh, in the US and the UK, where uh, regular people after after the pandemic are are basically saying, "Look, you've made millions out of us, you know, and uh, these huge corporations, the, the film industry included, and yeah, you know what, we're kind of not going to take it anymore." To sort of quote yeah. network, to keep it on the film um, on the film basis. But I've got a feeling that I mean, we're starting to see other industries, for instance, Kellogg's in the US is about to be hit by a major strike. Yeah. And there are uh, the, the shipping container people, lorry drivers in this country are going to go on strike. And, and I think people are starting to realise their worth. Now, as I said, not going to talk about politics. Though I'd love to. I could do a, we could do a politics <laughs> episode. But let's talk about how this is going to affect the film industry because all these things are related. So... For those who don't know the story, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, 
is preparing to take action if their negotiations over contracts with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers doesn't go favourably. The IATSE represents over 60,000 members made up of camera operators, production designers, editors, grips, craft services, script coordinators, all those people that pop up in the end credits list after the main cast are covered here. Should a strike happen, it will immediately shut down production on a huge wealth of projects that are currently in various stages. Potentially, some operators such as HBO, Stars and Showtime won't be affected as they're covered by different contracts anyway, but their workers might choose to stand in unison alongside their colleagues from other parts of the industry. This is the first time since World War II that the IATSE has come close to striking, and this time it's to do with working conditions of 14-hour days without breaks, forced weekend works, and also part of the issue has to do with streaming is taking dominance, and it doesn't pay the same as traditional releases. Like you said, in this post-COVID world, people want the financial security and the job security because we don't know what's going to happen when the next disease comes along. We've been given an eye-opening look at how everything can fall apart at the drop of a hat and people want more security in their contracts. Yeah, The decisions are getting made this week. By the time this show goes to air, a strike might have already taken place, and this, no doubt, will have an impact on films due out 2022, 2023, 2024. The last time we saw a major strike in Hollywood was the writer's strike, and yeah. films visibly suffered for that. It, it, it allowed Michael Bay to write his own screenplay. Yes. That's how much That's how much the world suffered during the writer's strike. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, anybody doesn't remember it, think of Quantum of Solace, for instance, yeah. which was a film that needed, uh, at some point, a better draft. So it's it's a, it's a troubling time for the industry from behind the scenes, just as the industry is picking itself up and putting itself back together, box office-wise. So we hope those in charge will, uh, will totally understand that that's a necessity. Yes. Definitely. Let's move on to positive news. Okay. Well, I say positive, but <laughs> Tom Holland has confirmed that No Way Home is going to close off the Homecoming trilogy and is going to serve to wrap up the threads and prepare the series for a new direction should further negotiations not allow MCU aspects to be used. In his words, we were all treating No Way Home as the end of a franchise. Let's say, I think if we were lucky enough to dive into these characters again, you'll see a very different version. It will no longer be Homecoming trilogy. We'll give it some time and try to build something different and tonally change the films. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. But we were definitely treating No Way Home like it's coming to an end and it felt like it. Now, some <laughs> some reporters online have taken this to mean that Tom Holland's leaving Spider-Man. I didn't take that at all away from that no, quote. It's, it's clear that he still wants to be involved. It's all we, 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 we. He still considers himself part of it, whether or not the MCU is there. It just means that if the MCU can't be connected to it anymore, Sony will have to do something different going forward. So they've used this third film, which is the next to last contracted appearance of Spider-Man with the MCU, as a way to just basically go, okay, let's put that to one side so we can now become whatever we need to be. Yeah, Interested to see what happens either way. I'd like him to stay in the MCU. I'd love more arrangements to be worked out. But... I've also got my problems with him being part of the MCU in that he's just been a Julius, a junior Iron Man, and I'd like him to become Spider Man. Yes, no, I agree. I and we've talked about this when we've talked about the film, and, and totally agree. And funny enough, I think I mentioned it in in a previous show. I watched Andrew Garfield Spider Man films afresh, and and, um, and some of the kicking that they got was absolutely well deserved. I I think they were perhaps kicked too heavily at times. You certainly can't take away the emotional scope 
of those movies yeah and and, and performances and there's a lot i i like about the first amazing spider-man there's a lot i like about about the second film more flawed than it is but they did have a bigger scope a much more cinematic scope than than tom holland's movies and and i miss those and i'm, I'm wondering if we get back into into a Sony-led Spider-Man universe as opposed to the connections to the Marvel universe, that we might get that that scope back again. Stallone has wrapped shooting on his final scenes for the Expendable films. Uh, the fourth outing of the franchise is currently shooting and will be the last one to star the 75-year-old actor. 75. I know. 75. Um, he's going to be passing the baton over to Statham, who will continue the franchise from this point on. The first three films were co-written by Stallone and starred him in the lead. But in this one, he's only a minor support character as he does the handover and steps away. Uh, the film stars Jason Statham, Dolph Lundgren, Megan Fox, 50 Cent, Andy Garcia and Tony Jaa and opens in 2022. And will no doubt just be the same dumb action riff that the previous three films have been, which I've got a bit of time for. Yeah, I like the first one. Uh, the second one, Outstayed, it's welcome. Uh, I didn't bother with the third. Maybe. I think I, th- I feel the third one was better than the second. Right, okay. Uh, I- I enjoyed it more than the second one. I think it's because the expectation for the second one meant that it was inevitably going to feel disappointing, whereas right. the third one just lent into the overblown action a bit more. And sticking with action comedy, uh, Catherine Hardwick's new feature, Mafia Mama, might tick some boxes. Tony Collette, Monica Bellucci, and Rob Hubel are starring in the film, which sees an American suburban housewife, Tony Collette, with a sexist pig of a boss, a teen son desperate to leave home, and a philandering husband, have her life drastically altered when her estranged grandfather passes away and she heads to Italy for his funeral, only to find that he ran the fiercest mafia family in southern Italy and she was in line to inherit the family business. Shooting, literally, begins in spring 2022. That sounds um, sounds okay. Yeah. I mean, Tony Collette's always someone who I'm interested yeah. to see. And in an action comedy role, I think that could be an intriguing uh, little diversion, really. Yeah. Uh, Michael Shannon has been cast. He's always an interesting actor to watch. Um, He's been cast as Senator Joseph McCarthy in the upcoming biopic of the Republican Senator. Okay. Um, Amelia Clark, Dane DeHaan and Scoot Neary are also cast alongside him. And the film's going to track McCarthy's rise to power amidst communist witch hunts and anti-socialist hysteria, as well as those who enabled him in his rise to power and control before looking at his fall from popularity. It's an inter- I mean, it's an interesting time in history to actually look back and analyse. It's been covered in multiple films. Uh, good night and good luck. I was just about to say, if, ones. if you're very new to what McCarthyism is or was, should I say, and how relevant it is to today, give Good Night and Good Luck by George Clooney a, a view because it's, uh, it's not only a fantastic film, very gripping, but gives you a. It sees what television could still be if it hadn't become so partisan. Shannon being cast in this title role for this new look at McCarthy himself. Yeah, that's that's got me on board just for his name being involved in it. And it's, like I say, it's an intriguing time in history to analyse. Two films that have been given a title that we still don't know a lot about. M. Night Shyamalan's next film will be titled Knock at the Cabin. And it's going to be the fifth collaboration with Universal Studios after The Visit, Split, Glass and Old. And Wes Anderson's next film finally has a title, allegedly, (laughs) which was accidentally slipped out by Bill Murray this week. Or at least we think it was. It might just be a working title and it's going to completely change. But the name that he gave was Asteroid City. What it means, nobody knows. But we can't wait to find out. Oh, of course. Let's just round off the news. Okay. Fincher and Netflix were teasing a new project this week and it got a lot of people excited. Everyone was clamouring for more information. 
and a lot of people were hugely disappointed um, and gave size out when it turned out to not be a new series of Mindhunter. In fact, what it was interested me much more. They are working together on a new docu-series, which will be a collection of visual essays for the love of cinema. Okay, I'm in. The title of it is Voir, and online writer Drew McQueenie, who's involved in the project, has said, I can tell you that this is a series of standalone video essays about movies. We're not trying to sell you anything, and we're not interviewing anyone about what Marvel movies they're doing. We're each tackling a totally different idea, something that intrigues us or upsets us or has to do with our connection to the movies. Each one runs between 10 and 30 minutes, and they were produced with the full support and involvement of Fincher and David Pryor, who you may know as the director of The Empty Man. This is right up our film file alley, and we will no doubt be watching and relishing every little aspect of this short documentary series. So before we close off the news, let's talk about Shatner in space. Shatner in space. This is so meta. So it... (laughs) If anybody saw it over the last uh, last week, well, William Shatner, age 90, which was the most incredible thing for me, took a ride uh, on a rocket ship uh, in real life this time. Jeff Bezos uh, gave Shatner a seat on his Blue Horizon uh, rocket ship. Uh, they were only in space, um, and the very edge of space for 10 minutes. That's not the point. I have seen people argue online, because, because of course, the internet, <laughs> that it wasn't yes. proper space. But you know what? I would do it for 10 minutes. That would be absolutely awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, it is particularly meta. But I think what what what, what was interesting, and, and there's a, there is a whole argument about Jeff Bezos going into space, but, hey, it's his money. And such follies as spending money on expeditions have proven otherwise to have a, a great effect on humanity. I mean, we have uh, to remember as... that not only Bezos, but also Elon Musk, uh, not just doing this for for a jolly. It's not just a leisurely thing. They are investing in getting people up to the International Space Station. Yeah. They are assisting with actual space missions with their own accumulated wealth. Yeah. So I'm 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 not not petty about it. I'm I'm sure there's uh, lots of other charitable causes that both gentlemen are heavily involved in that we perhaps that we don't see. But yes, there are issues on this planet that of course need doing. Anyway, that's not the argument. That's not the conversation. It was when William Shatner landed and he was clearly, clearly overcome by the experience of seeing seeing the planet from, from that high. Yeah, and he broke into tears. It's, he did. It's a... He broke into tears. The man broke down uh, and it was very touching. Couldn't find the words, which was highly unlike Shatner. And I, I found it very, very moving. I found mm. uh, what he had to say very moving. And what an experience for a guy who inspired so many other people to want to go into space to get that opportunity. So for that, a huge applause. But if you've not seen the clip, it's out on YouTube, um, Shatner in Space. And it is a very, very touching just to see the emotion that the guy had for, for his brief 10 minutes of being a proper spaceman. Snippets of the words that he said, it's so much lar- larger than me and life. It hasn't got anything to do with little green men. Uh, or the little green hand, or the little blue orb. The covering of blue, this sheath, this blanket, this comforter of blue that we have all around, we say, oh, that's blue sky, and then suddenly you shoot through it all. It's poetic. Even though he was stumbling for the words, everything that he says is just so touching and poetic, and it shows how much this experience meant to him. Now, sadly, on the back of that, George Takai took the opportunity to continue the sulky tiff that the pair have had over the years. 
okay. commenting about the whole thing. He's boldly going where other people have gone before. He's a guinea pig, 90 years old, and it's important to find out what happens. 90, 90 years old is going to show a great deal more wear and tear on the human body, so he'll be a good specimen to study, although he's not the fittest specimen of 90 years old, so he'll be a specimen that's unfit. Really, George? Is this the time for that? Well, yeah. Shatner took the bait, but he responded beautifully. Okay. He tweeted out, don't hate George. The only time he gets press is when he talks bad about me. He claims 50 plus years ago, I took a camera angle that denied him 30 more seconds of primetime TV. Shrug. I'm giving it back to him now by letting him spew his hatred for all the world to see. Happy smiley face. Bill the pig. <laughs> so he's basically, Shatner's clearly over it. Shatner clearly doesn't care anymore what George Takai's got with this petty battle that he thinks is still a, a important feud. He's just gone into space. He's just had a great time. He's just had the most amazing experience that you could have in your whole life at the age of 90. He's not going to rise to um, some petty bickering from George Takai, who really, really needs to get a new shtick. Congratulations, Mr. Shatner. Congratulations, Rocketman. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the news. Still with us, still enjoying the film file. Thank you for joining us. And let me make a suggestion. Head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit the subscribe button and a like. Go on, you know you want to. Make us happy. And in all seriousness, why don't you tell five friends who can tell five friends who can tell five friends and eventually we take over the world. The world, I tell you. The world. <laughs> but calming down. If you want to know more about the film file, all you have to do is head over to Twitter, follow us at Filmfile UK. Pop over to Instagram and see pictures of us and follow us, Filmfile UK. You can email us with any thoughts, suggestions, comments, problems. I still want to, I still want to be that agony uncle. I still <laughs> want that role. Uh, podcast at Filmfile UK. Or look at the description on the podcast platform that you're at. There's a link there. You can leave us a voice message if you wish. And any nice voice messages that you want to be added to the show on comments about your thoughts on films, we will happily include you as part of our show. So as you know, in each episode, we do a deep dive into a classic cult film or a film that we just downright want to talk about. So much has been said about our deep dive today that I don't know if we can offer anything new to the discussion, but we can certainly bring our enthusiasm to it. It came out in 1981. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Lawrence Kasdan, Based on the story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman, it starred Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, Paul Freeman, Ronald Lacey, John Reese davis and Denham Elliott, and it changed people's lives. And all you have to do is hear this little bit of music to know what film we are talking about. The Ark it is something that man was not meant to disturb. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. Indiana. Jones! Let her go. Snakes. Why do they have to be snakes? I'm going after that truck. this up as I go.
Conceived back in the 1970s, George Lucas was seeking to modernize the serial films of the early 20th centuries. You know the ones, the Republic features, your Flash Gordons, your Book Rogers, and developed his idea with filmmaker Philip Kaufman, who suggested the Ark of the Covenant as the film's goal. Lucas eventually focused on developing this 1977 little-known space opera known as Star Wars, but always wanted to keep the idea of Raiders of the Lost Ark going, and he resumed that with Steven Spielberg. They chatted about the project for several months. The pair had ideas and set pieces and stunts for the film, and they hired Lawrence Kasdan to fill in the narrative gaps and create what we now know as a classic film. Yes, there have been sequels. Yes, there's even been a prequel. But there is something about Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, in all honesty, is the, still the best one for many, many reasons. Now, to give it a bit of context, I saw this at the ABC Cinema in Sheffield. And for some reason, I was late to the party because my parents had seen it before me and kept telling me how much I should go and see this film. I don't know why I was late to the party. I can't answer that now in, in, uh, in hindsight, but I was. And I, then I went to see it. And you know what? Then I went to see it again and again and again. Came out on VHS, owned it on that, owned it on, uh, uh, on DVD, have it on Blu-ray. And it's still a go-to because it's so damn exciting and so damn charming. Andy, Raids Lost Ark. I was a wee little lad of eight years old when this came out. It's four decades old. Four decades. I remember this film being everywhere. On TV, we had behind-the-scenes specials. There were posters up advertising it on hoardings. Everywhere you looked, people were talking about it. The must-see film. And especially for a lad of my age, who I used to relish watching reruns of the action-adventure serials each morning during the summer holidays. I used to love those kind of things. So this was that brought to vivid life. Of course, it was one of those films I got to see on the big screen on initial release, and I've lapped up every opportunity to re-watch it in latter years through the VHS release, TV showings over Christmas or bank holidays, DVD, Blu-ray like yourself. It's a regular revisit, and it's something that still lives up to scrutiny today. And in recent years, a remastered cinema release gave me an opportunity to revisit it on the big screen all over again and still fall in love with it from the start. Ford is absolutely perfect in the role of the archaeologist with a fun, fondness for a bullwhip and a fedora. His grizzled approach works so well for this adventurer. The, the storyline of seeking the Ark of the Covenant also leads to him opening old wounds at the same time, one of those wounds being the marvellous Karen Allen, as Marion Ravenwood, who, rather than just being a damsel in distress in this film, it's her tough, feisty and spirited nature that make her stand out as something much more than what latter films would have as the female lead. Uh, the pair of them bicker and bounce off each other with a chemistry that lends well to the film. And you've already mentioned the support cast in the rundown of who's in this, but how good is Paul Freeman as Rene Belloc? Yeah. The rival archaeologist aiding the Nazis is charmingly evil. You actually like him, even though you absolutely hate him at the same time. And then you've got Ronald Lacey as Major Tote, who is just twisted and menacing throughout the poor guy would probably would probably get punched by people in the street for being such a nasty piece of work in this film because he's so good in it. And then you've got like the magnificent roles of like played by Denham Elliott and John Rhys Davis, giving some light comic relief that never overpowers the the serious adventure drama of the whole film. This is a film that I absolutely adore. The action, the adventure, and the spectacle make it work. 
and Spielberg and his cinematographer, Douglas Cloakham, absolutely deliver on making sure that every scene looks amazing and plays well. And it was Lucas's love of those early serials, as I said before, the book Rogers, the Flash Gordons. And in fact, if you remember correctly, that it, initially Lucas wanted to uh, uh, wanted to get the rights to uh, Flash Gordon. Yeah. And ended up not being able to do that and made Star Wars instead. And if you ever read any of the early uh, uh, Star Wars scripts, they were much more Flash Gordon than they were the Star Wars that we know today. But while he was finishing uh, American Graffiti back in 73, he had an old movie poster of a heroic character leaping from a horse to a truck. And, and it reminded uh, Lucas of, of that love of those old, early serial films, you know, um, in particular, things like Fighting Legion and Spy Smasher and Dan Winslow of the Navy. And there was a, a particular Charlton Heston, which was a le he played a leather jacketed adventurer and all those stuck. And he created the iconic character of Indiana Smith. Wait a minute, you say Indiana Smith? Well, yeah, that was the original title. The name Indiana comes from the name of uh, uh, Lucas's dog, but originally the character was Indiana Smith. So he worked out the idea with Philip Kaufman with the intent that Kaufman uh, would direct. Kaufman brought in the idea of the Ark of the Covenant and that led into the idea of the Nazis because of uh, Hitler's fascination historically uh, with, uh, with the occult. Lucas wanted Kaufman to direct the film, but be because he was already committed to working on the Western, the outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood, Lucas paused this idea and again uh, returned to working on Star Wars. And, and of course, we all know what happened then. Spielberg and Lucas used to have a little bit of a tradition where they go on vacation to Hawaii to avoid any potential negative reviews about the theatrical debut of their films. And uh, with Spielberg, um, they talked about this idea of, of wanting to create their own action hero. And Spielberg wanted to direct a James Bond film. But Lucas pitched him The Adventures of Indiana Smith, still hoping that Kaufman would direct. Uh, it was quite clear that Spielberg was the man to replace him. And as I said before, they brought in uh, Lawrence Kasdan, a great writer who'd been working in Hollywood, who again created a lavish screenplay. And he brought in those elements of, of, of the Magnificent Seven, the idea of the anti-hero, yeah. an archaeologist, because originally, funny enough, uh, Indiana Smith was a nightclub owner. And we saw hints of that in the sequel. And, and they basically pieced together enough of a film that several elements were cut and dropped into Temple of Doom. But all those elements created the Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark that we know today. And it is an absolutely classic movie. Now, because of it, of it being a, a set in a, in a different time, that's one of the reasons that makes it feel absolutely, absolutely timeless. Because it ties into our shared knowledge of, of, of the cliffhanger story. It gives it this sense of always feeling fresh because we, we know that we know the beats intrinsically. It is the perfect hero. And with Harrison Ford in the lead, it just gave it that charisma. But Andy, you're about to tell me that it wasn't necessarily always going to be Harrison Ford. Yes. Um, initially, Harrison Ford wasn't up for it. Now, it seems like a daft thing when you say it now. How come Harrison Ford wasn't going to be involved? You know, surely he was huge. What with, um, you know, that Star Wars thing. And he knew Lucas. So... Wasn't he the ideal fit? No, it was originally going to be Tom Selleck. Yes, Magnum P.I. himself, who was a huge name at the time, was the lead 
that they wanted for this role. And I can kind of see it. When I think about it, I can kind of see it. Even though Harrison Ford definitely made the role his own, I can see why they wanted to go for a Selleck kind of approach. He's got the kind of nature that would have fitted into it, maybe played it slightly differently. And obviously, we wouldn't have had at least one of the most iconic moments of the film. Let's talk about some of the moments, because from the opening scene, Andy raiding the Peruvian temple, resulting in the iconic and oft-emulated fleeing from a rolling boulder, to the bloody finale of chilling effects. It's packed with action set pieces and moments that land well. And the circumstances on set change some scenes, most notably that moment with a swordsman flourishing his blade in a show-offy way as he's ready to attack Indy in the middle of the markets. And Indy just casually takes his gun out and shoots him and moves on. It's a moment that was supposed to be an epic fight. But because Ford himself wasn't feeling well at the time, he insisted that... I've got a gun. Why don't I just shoot him? And so they shot it and went, actually, that's actually worked so much better. And that was what Ford brought to it. He brought that, well, you know, this is, I mean, Ford was known for doing this on Star Wars, that he said that things were nonsense and hokey and didn't make sense. And he would call things out. I think with Indiana Jones, his attitude of doing that worked to the benefit of the film because he didn't just sit there and accept nonsense in the script. He would question it and they would change the script around it to make it work and feel like it's a natural thing. It's kind of interesting because, as you said, you can't really think of of Indiana Jones as other than, than Harrison Ford because he poured, or you feel he poured so much of himself into it. And, and the reason he wasn't initially cast was his connection to Star Wars. It was seen as too close. Uh, some of the other names that were considered, people like Nick Nolte, Tim Matheson, Peter Coyote, uh, Jeff Bridges, Sam Elliott, Harry Hamlin were all all considered. And it was because of uh, Tom Selleck's relationship to Magnum P.I. and the actor strike of 1980 put that show on hiatus, which wouldn't have allowed Selleck to star as Jones. Uh, and, and even though, to be honest, Selleck did have a go at almost making a couple of Raiders of the Lost Ark style movies, it, it never really, really worked out for him as a, as a big screen hero. He always worked better. Uh, on the tube as opposed to to movies but there were so many iconic moments i mean the set pieces are fantastic all the way through all the stunts are absolutely have a, a real sense of weight to them that perhaps some of the uh a one in particular sequel didn't you felt that indy was taking the knocks indy would be hurt indy gets up at the end but he is he's damaged there's a real sense of threat that runs through the entire movie. And that's one of the elements that's missing for me from, from Temple of Doom, because it's a, a, a prequel and you know that Indy will survive. Um, you never felt that, that Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark would, would make it intact to the end of the movie. And that was one of, one of the key elements of it. The fact that it goes from fighting Nazis to, to the supernatural yeah. made it for me. Give me those two elements in any sort of uh, sort of movie. Make it mysterious. Make it supernatural. Then I am in. That is my kind of a movie. Uh, and not just a, a... And it could have gone either way. It could have been a purely supernatural movie or it could have been a pure action film. But combining those two elements absolutely makes it work for me. It lands every time. We talked about 1941 and the effect that 1941 had on Spielberg as a filmmaker. This film was lean. He brought it on on time, brought it in on budget, made him a better filmmaker. And because of the 1941 curse, Spielberg works very, very hard all the way through 
to, to, to bring this in on as tight a budget as absolutely possible. And it's, it's kind of, um, you know, the fact that it lacked some of the money and some of the budget that they wanted made them more creative. I think if, if it had been overscheduled and over budget, like 1941, for instance, I think, uh, I don't think we'd have had Spielberg being as creative as he was in this particular film. Um, absolutely adore it. I mean, we can't talk about Raised Lost Art without talking about subsequent sequels uh, yeah. and where they went. So um, in running order, Temple of Doom is okay. Don't dislike it. Likes hmm. more supernatural quality than, than I would have liked and makes it much more sort of a routine action film. Um, love Last Crusade and the less said the better about uh, <laughs> Kingdom of the Air. I can't remember what the full title was and I don't really care. Temple of Doom felt like it was a rushed out sequel just to try to cash in on the success of Raiders. I don't like the character of Willie Scott played by Kate Capshaw. She's a, after we just had Karen Allen as the fierce, feisty and also very self-determined Marion to go and have Kate Capshaw as basically a screaming girly damsel in distress throughout is an annoyance. And whilst it's got some great moments, the opening club scuffle is packed with fun peril. The minecart escape is thrilling and the rope bridge is absolutely jaw-droppingly tense. But the dropped in a film that felt tired and it felt like it was just a collection of action set pieces with a loose story around it, whereas the first one felt like a journey. Then you got to the third film, and boy, am I so glad that they picked things up for The Last Crusade. Indy finding his father, Sean Connery, who went missing whilst tracking down the legend of the Holy Grail. Which is almost so meta, isn't it? That you brought yeah. Sean Connery into play, the father of Indiana Jones, as I said. Spielberg wanted to direct a Bond movie. We're back into Nazi territory with the Nazis seeking religious iconography. And this film is a solid final entry in the series. Uh, from the opening prologue showing young Indy seeking to stop the threat of an art artifact to a biplane dogfight, desert tanks battle, and much, much more. And it flows with a narrative that is genuinely clue-piecing together uh, from one se scene to the next. The chemistry between Ford and Connery works so well that if anyone doesn't feel a tear in their eye when Connery's Henry Jones Sr. finally calls his son Indiana, you're dead to me. If you don't if you don't feel yourself welling up at that, you're <laughs> dead to me. Because that is the defining moment of their relationship. It closes with a genuine ride into the sunset, the perfect end to the series. So why on earth did they give us Crystal Skull? Why did they have to go and ruin it by giving us... I don't know, a question that will be asked for many times. And to some extent, uh, with the idea of a, of a new Indiana Jones film, I still think the three films should have uh should yeah. have should have been it should have called it a day as you said it gave the obligatory ride into the sunset i would rather have seen something like the young indiana jones chronicles and taking the adventures yeah. of a young indie than playing on the on this this idea for a fourth film there had been talk for many years of another indiana jones film and several scripts were circulating, uh, including one that whether it was was true or false that would have Kevin Cosner as Indy's uh, strange kid brother, which would have been an interesting way to go. But the film that we got felt like a combination of fan service, lots and lots of mis missteps. Didn't mind the setting being moved from the 30s to the 50s because I thought that was no. was interesting to have him up against the Russians. And I didn't mind the idea that we were getting into science fiction elements because that's what the 1950s flying saucers was all about. Yeah. But all those elements didn't didn't land 
for whatever reason, the film that we got just feels an afterthought as opposed to uh, a a complete Indiana Jones story. Even the, the fan service of The Return of Marion, the idea of the son in, in Shia LaBeouf, who was clearly miscast in that particular movie. I think I'd rather have gone with a Kevin Cosner younger brother. Yeah. I mean, when, when this film was in production, Spielberg was insisting that it wouldn't be CGI heavy and there was going to be a lot of practical effects. But then as soon as the film starts with a CGI prairie dog popping out the ground, you immediately realise there's a bait and switch gone on and the film ended up being clumsy and disjointed. The action sequences are let down either by poor editing, the chase through the jungle scene, for example, poor CGI, again, the chase through the jungle scene, or poor attempts at humour. Look, that jungle scene is just atrocious. <laughs> let's just let's just stick with that. Say. Yeah, I never want to see swinging <laughs> monkeys ever, ever again in an Indiana Jones film. And then we have The Fridge, which has replaced jumping the shark with nuking the fridge as a result as the point in a franchise where you just lose all hope that it's got anything to deliver. And do you know where that scene came from? Where did it come from? It comes from an original script to Back to the Future. Oof. That was how Marty McFly was going to get back to <laughs> uh, uh, present day. And that was the original ending of, of, of Back to the Future. The, the problem with the fridge is, I mean, someone tried saying, oh, well, you know, the lead line fridge would have protected him from radiation. It's like, no, 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 no. It might have protected the radiation, but the intense heat would have melted the lead around the body. And the fact that it, it launched about a mile and a half before bouncing on the ground, it would have broken every bone in that body. So it should have like landed, the door flops open, and a charred, broken corpse of Indiana Jones rolls out, <laughs> roll end credits. That's how someone needs to re-edit that film, because then you've only got half an hour of a, of a terrible, terrible film to watch, and you can just wipe it out of existence. It, it was a mess of a film. And I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I'm not sold on the next one. I'm not sold that we need it. I'll give it a chance. I, I hope that it recovers a bit, but I do like to think of this as a trilogy of films. Uh, I totally agree. Um, just before we close this, I certainly believe that with the fifth film and not having Spielberg at, at the helm, this is such a monumental way to make an apology for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that that they they know that the how polarised the fans were yeah. over that movie there has to be an aim uh not to um not to nuke the fridge with this one i posted out a poll on our twitter feed this week to find out what you all thought of the indiana jones franchise asking the question which indiana jones film is your favorite out of the three and that other one that currently exist 39.2 percent of people said raiders of the lost ark 39.2 percent of people said the last crusade so we've got a dead heat in first place there Temple of Doom racked up 13.7% of votes and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull had 7.8% of votes, which I did question. I'm intrigued who's liking this, but no one got back to me. No one wants to own up to voting for Crystal Skull. <laughs> if you want to see Raids of the Lost Ark, uh, they are available on Amazon, but if I don't know for how much longer, on Amazon Prime. And of course, there is a fantastic uh, new 4K restoration that's available. Um, discs, which I would love, even though it does include the fourth one. But it's a film that every few years I will go back to. And I had the great pleasure of sharing it with my boy and who was absolutely enamored by it. Yeah. And this legacy lives on. My kids were introduced to it at quite an early age and they inherited my DVD box set when I got the Blu-ray set. 
uh, which they have they basically worn the DVDs out. I didn't know you could wear DVDs out, but they have watched them so many times. All of my kids have embraced this film, which shows that it is timeless. Okay, next week we'll have a brand new deep dive for you. But in the meantime, Andy's been to the cinema and I've not, which is becoming a regular part of this program. <laughs> I'm still recovering. I'll give it that one. Andy, what do you want to talk about this week? What have you seen? And what are you telling us? So let's start with Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. Each man is to fight to the death. Discover the unbelievable true story that is now the cinematic event of the year. Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, and Ben Affleck. I want him to answer for what he has done. Critics rave. No one does it like Ridley Scott. Let them go! Let them go! Let them go! The Last Duel. Set in medieval France, The Last Duel is adapted from the book of the same name by Eric Jaeger, and it tells the story of the last officially recognised judicial duel fought in France. Matt Damon and Adam Driver play Jean de Carouge and Jacques Legris after the former accuses the latter of raping his wife, Marguerite, played by Jodie Comer. The film starts off with the initial scene of the duel, beginning with a joust, and as the first crashing blow hits, we are thrown back into a telling of the events that led up to the duel, but we aren't given a simple retelling. Instead, we are delivered it via three different narrative perspectives in a Rashomon-style analysis of the perception of truth to represent the three involved given their testimony during the trial. First, we get Damon's Jean's version, then the similar, but with slight nuances of differences to events representing drivers Jacques, before Marguerite's version is played out. There's a level of social commentary in this film, a critical exploration of the systemic misogyny in the era in which the events that transpired saw women treated as property rather than holding any rights of their own. Indeed, sneers at Marguerite being a reader and her being traded in marriage to secure land are not hidden. They are surface to the film and not in a subtle way. This isn't a film that wants you to be softly drawn into the injustices women face. It wants to bash you over the head with them, whilst also making you realise how relevant such critiques are today. But it's also a solid drama with a solid cast in an historical setting that allows for some truly epic grandeur on display. Brutal and shocking, the film doesn't hold back and it stands as one of Scott's best entries of recent years. The core three cast are great in their roles and playing slightly nuanced changes through each variant of the story, they get a chance to shine in multiple ways. Jodie Comer stands tallest of them all, with her telling of the events putting a lot of the previously seen moments into a whole new light. In addition, Ben Affleck, sporting bleach blonde hair and a beard, is on hand as the Count Pierre, a corrupt, rich aristocrat who takes Jean under his wing and leads to his downward spiral of models. It's a long film, and to some, this retelling approach of the same tale three times might cause it to feel longer, but not for me. For those who enjoy seeing multiple perspectives played out in different ways, this is a film that allows you to slowly build the truth in your own mind whilst engaging with the characters portraying them. Yeah, I'm going to try and get to see this one. I, I didn't tell you I finally got to see Bond. That we, uh, well, I, I told you off air that I finally got to yes. see Bond and I was blown away by it. Uh, I, I will get to see that this week. What else do you have? Halloween Kills. It's Halloween night in Haddonfield. 40 years ago, the boogeyman came for us. We are the survivors of Michael Myers. Lori, what do we do? We fight. After what he's done to this town and my family, we will kill him. Happy Halloween, Michael.
So Halloween Kills picks up right after the events of the 2018 film. Deputy Frank Hawkins is found by Cameron Elam, and a flashback to the 1978 events flesh out some backstory to explain how the hunt for Myers is a personal one for Hawkins. Back to the present, and Tommy Doyle, played by Anthony Michael Hall, one of the kids Laurie sat for in 1978, is hosting a celebration of the 40th anniversary of Myers being locked up with other survivors of that night, unaware that Myers is back. In the burning wreckage where Myers was locked away by Laurie, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, firefighters unwittingly free him and suffer for doing so. So starts his continuing return home and killings along the way, whilst the townsfolk start to grow a mob mentality and seek their own vengeance against Myers. Much like the 2018 revamp, which discarded all the lore of the franchise to date, this film simply feels like it's retreading old ground, and the once menacing presence of Myers holds no chill anymore. So, instead, bloody gore is used to plug the gaps, making the killings more shocking than chilling. Whilst Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie looks less and less like she wants Myers killed for his atrocities, and more like she wants him killed so she can stop appearing in these films. It's bland, it's generic, and even when the film thinks it's cleverly shining a spotlight on mob justice and how it leads to even worse things, it is so clumsily approached that what should be an horrific look at the worst of human nature instead becomes almost laughable, and it's signed off with an unnecessary gore effect once more. By the time the end came, which failed to actually resolve anything. After all, we need to remember that there's another film due next year, which will pick up straight after this one. All I could really muster was a nonchalant shrug. What I liked about the previous Halloween was that I felt that they concluded it. And clearly, they've now talked about this being the trilogy. But I thought it was a great place to have ended it. And, And by the sounds of things, we didn't need this film. They had a perfect, perfect ending to be able to walk away from. And that's what I thought was novel about the new Halloween film. It disregarded all the bump that that came after um, Halloween 2. And even though I must admit I did like H2O. Yeah. But I just thought they had a perfect, a perfect place to finally end it. Fully agree. H2O was possibly the last time that the franchise was worthy, in my opinion. Yeah. And my final film is the Amazon and Bloomhouse collaboration, Madres. I can't believe you left LA. It all worked out. The baby comes in a couple of months. You're first? Yes. How are you feeling? I got you this. It's very important for new mothers to be protected. Did you know the woman who lived here before us? hallucinations, rashes. How long have you had this? What? The locals think it's a curse. Maldición! Women are not having babies here. Why are you doing this? Madres is another in the latest wave of Amazon and Welcome to the Blumhouse collaborations. And it's an intriguing and well-presented film, even if it fails almost entirely as a horror. Adriana Guerrera plays Diana, who's an expecting mother in the 70s, moving from LA with her husband, Beto, to work on a farm. As they settle into this immigrant community, she starts to develop unusual symptoms and sees horrific visions. Suggestions that these events are part of a curse that afflicts women in the area are rebuked by Diana, who seeks to uncover the truth behind them. The truth, when it comes, 
will not be a surprise to anyone who knows a little about the history of Mexican immigrants in the 70s. And the film has a denouement that does leave you thinking. If you don't know the history, the reveal may shock you when you realise the actual true events the tale is inspired by. But by melding some supernatural elements in, it almost damages the core real-life story. And this is a film that maybe would have played better as a serious drama than an attempt at social commentary horror. The horror moments themselves fail to land with any chills, and they seem totally superfluous to the rest of the film. But the main story gives it some depth, and the cast and direction are generally quite solid. Overall, this is one of the better Welcome to the Blumhouse offerings this year, even if it is a slightly average overall experience. Saying it's one of the best Blumhouse offerings this year from this series isn't really a huge selling point, but at least it's not as bad as the previous ones have been. I'm still not buying into these Blumhouses. I've tried. I can't see myself going back, even though this is probably the most positive that you've, you've talked about with Blumhouse. Yeah. So what are we looking forward to this week for our delectation? Well, we've only got one film that's really looking. we're looking forward to, and that's Dune. Oh, there's two, because there's French Dispatch as well. Oh, so and French Cinemas Dispatch. Got... Yeah, how could I forget that? We've been talking <laughs> about it for a year. <laughs> At cinemas, there's Dune. Frank Herbert's epic finally gets to arrive with Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides, the son of Duke Leto, who has a destiny to free the world of Arrakis as the Quizzix Hadarak. And if none of those words made sense, hopefully they will by the time you've watched this film. It looks epic. Uh, D and Evan Hansen lands as well. Boss Baby 2, for those people who are desperate. And uh, the French Dispatch, which... I've, I commented the other day that I've not rated any film five stars this year. This week could be the week that two films get five star ratings out of me. French Dispatch being one of them. Fingers crossed. Um, on Now TV and Sky, Monster Family 2 lands for those people who found some charm in the first one. I thought it was okay. Over on Netflix, Lock and Key Season 2 lands. Oh, looking forward to that. And also... French films stuck together looks quite interesting. Quirky residents of an apartment block in Paris are forced into isolation. And on Amazon, After We Fell, a sequel to After We Collided, which wowed the box office last year in between lockdowns. Not my cup of tea, but there's definitely an audience out there for that kind of drivel. Okay, I'm guessing that's nearly about it for this week. But before we go, and we do this every week, Andy and I will tell you about our neat things. Something that we've watched, done, enjoyed, played, you name it. As long as it's been pretty neat for us, we're going to tell you about it. And as ever, Andy goes first. Have I told you how excited I am about Dune coming out? You may I might have, mentioned, have it. mentioned it once or twice. I might have mentioned how I am a huge fan of it and I've read the book multiple times. Well, I'm listening to the audiobook again, and it's my neat thing this week. It's 21 hours of epic storytelling. The book, written by Frank Herbert, is narrated by Scott Brick, Orlar Cassidy, Ewan Morton, Simon Vance, Ilyana Cashdun, Brian, Byron Jennings, David R. Gordon, Jason Culp, Kent Broadhurst, Oliver Wyman, and Patricia Kilgariff, giving it not just a reading of the book, but it feels like a dramatization and a play at the same time. It's completely engaging. It's a fascinating listen. And even though I know this story inside out from multiple readings, hearing the story of the Atreides and Harkonnens, the manipulations of the Padishar Emperor over the spice planet of Arrakis, despite it being so well known to me, it will never grow old. And I'm being surprised once again and drawn into the characters. This is what I love about Dune. I love that this story is so epic in scale that each time I re revisit it, I can get something new from it. And going through the audiobook again, I've already lined up Dune Messiah and Children of Dune to follow after this. I've basically got a few months worth of like listening to do on my way to and from work. Dune on audiobook is on Audible. Get it in your ears and enjoy such a fantastic 
telling of the story. So mine is something that was Andy's neat thing. And I binged uh, Why the Last Man. Now, Andy's talked about it, really liked it. I was very aware of Brian K. Vaughan's uh, original series and, and liked it a lot. I didn't stick with it. I only got the first book, uh, which which was very good and a hell of a a hell of an idea for a series. Anybody, man or animal, who has the Y chromosome suddenly and inexplicably dies, leaving the world in control of women apart from one man. Yorick, the Y, the last man of the title. The series stars Dinah Lane, uh, Ashley Romans, Ben Schnetzer as Y, Oliver Thurby and Amber Tamberlin. And they've expanded on the book, uh, which has been pretty interesting. And at first I was thought by episode two that they sort of shot themselves in the foot. So I went back and revisited the book and found that, um, found that yes, they were following the story. What's interesting about this is that uh, they're focusing on more the sort of surrounding characters, in, in particular Diana Lane mm. as Jennifer Brown, who is at, uh, who's a U.S. Democratic Congresswoman who's elevated to the office of, of president and has to establish uh, a, a brand new way of government working. I think within the uh, in the series more so than the book, they're looking at peripheral characters and expanding upon why sister hero, for instance as well as um, Agent three, Agent 355, who is a, a member of a secret organization and becomes Yorick's bodyguard. Schnetzer, in the role of Yorick, brings this sort of uh, affable nature to what's happening around him and becomes the series' damsel in distress. Now, we're only up to six episodes. I'm up to date with five of those, uh, enjoying an awful lot. I think if it had came out a few years ago, the idea of this post-apocalyptic world would have made much more of an impact. But since then, we've had The Walking Dead and several of the series set in uh, in a dystopia. But for what it's worth, I'm having a great time with it and looking forward to this on a weekly basis. That's Why the Last Man, and you can find that on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and that's it for this week. We'll be back with another show next week. Who knows what's going to happen over the next week, but I know one thing. Andy will be ahead of me in seeing June, and I can't yep. wait. <laughs> I can't wait for Dune. I, I have to get that injected into me as soon as possible, so I will have my full review of that next week. And obviously, we will find time, hopefully together, to get to see Wes Anderson's latest one. Yes, indeed. We'll be talking about both of those next week. But in the meantime, take care and remember, bad dates.